Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly like eagles. Ten day chest day, ten die. Sorry, ten die chest day. He's currently a management consultant in London. Twelve years ago, when he was twenty two years old, he was a student and he was struggling to make ends meet. Um, he was in a postgraduate degree program in London. He was from Zimbabwe, and because his family had moved to the UK when he was seventeen. Uh, Tende uh, was not permitted to work in the United Kingdom. He was also not eligible for student loans. So you can imagine the difficulty he had in paying his bills. So his parents worked and sent him money, but that left, um, you know, gaps in his financial need every month. And so he had these housemates who would cover those gaps and then he would pay them back when he got paid. But of course, that would then create new gaps for the next month. And so this is what Tende said about his uh, experience Uh, 12 years ago now. Money was tight. It was, uh, that completely limited my social life. I couldn't do anything other than the things I just had to do for school. And so he said, I was stuck at church a lot. And one week I was down to just seven pence in my bank account. Uh, And he said, uh, we were reading uh, the story of the widow's might. And I found myself quite literally putting a penny in the offering plate. I actually put it in an envelope first because I was so ashamed. Um, I didn't want to just put the penny in all by itself. He then says, part of the blessing of not being able to, um, to do much, not having any money at all, is that you spend a lot of time with God. So I spent a lot of time with God and I got used to spending hours. I would say I was praying, but I wasn't really saying or asking anything. I was just waiting. I was just waiting with the Lord. I was getting to the place where it didn't matter if I had no money because, well, God was present and I could feel him. I had a sense of peace. I'd been waiting 15 or 20 minutes in prayer one day, and there was just this picture in my mind, just this picture of this Nat West name tag. Now, for those of you listening, you're like, I don't know what Nat West is. I think it's a bank based on the story that follows now. So imagine a like bank name tag. And uh, and on it, he says, in his mind's eye, uh, like, right, in, in this picture that came to his mind is just the name Sarah on this Nat West name tag. And he says, and then I just, I clearly understood that God was saying, your money is coming tomorrow. And I thought to myself, what money? What is What is God talking about? Go in tomorrow afternoon to the bank and collect your money and take half of it and give the rest of it to Sarah. And I thought, who is Sarah? He said, this is 10 days testimony. He said, I didn't know what to think. I was, I was scared. But I also had this sense of excitement to see if this was true, if this was real. So I went to the bank the next day, and I was shocked to find 800 pounds had been deposited into my account. No reference to where it came from. 
I couldn't remember the last time I'd seen 800 pounds in my account. So at first I felt this rush of excitement and then I realized this is actually happening. God is providing. Sarah wasn't, there was no Sarah at the bank that day. So I couldn't give her the half that God had told me to give her. So the next day I wait in her queue and I get to the front and I say, Sarah, this is going to sound strange, but I need to give this to you. And she says, oh, you would like to make a deposit? And he said, well, not exactly. And then I realized how crazy this was going to sound, just giving a person money in the bank. How was I going to explain this? And so I just said, there's a note inside that explains everything. So just read it. This is for you. I just want you to know God loves you and God blesses you. She was shaking. Her face was in complete disbelief and I just left. But I think she must have needed exactly that much and God knew it and God used me to answer her prayer for his provision. Tende says that experience made my faith grow. Um, I'm not concerned about hardship. I don't spend time worrying about what might go wrong because I have seen God deliver. I've been there. God took care of me. God was with me. I draw on that experience of encouragement to step out and do things that are out of the norm, that require you to believe that God can do impossible things. He did for me. So today's Growing Your Faith verse of the day comes from Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. Do not love money. Be satisfied with what you have, for God has said, I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. So you can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. So I will have no fear. What can mere people do to me? My friend, that verse is easy to receive or quote or hang on the wall when we've got more than enough. But when resources are stretched thin, really tight, um, how does that verse fall on you then? I hope 10 days testimony help this verse um, become more real to you today. Because that's what happened to 10 day. And it can happen to you as well. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Hey, our friend Nick Pitts is back. We're going to talk a little bit about marriage. Hey, Nick. Why, hello there, Carmen. Happy Tuesday. Happy Tuesday, man. Taste and see Tuesday. We're going to help people taste and see that the Lord is good. Mm-hmm. Tasty. That sounds great. That sounds mm-hmm. great to me. Uh, wedding cake. Uh, did you have some? Oh, I th- wedding cake is up there with dance floor slash DJ band as some of the most important things that can happen at a wedding ceremony and reception. So uh, we did have wedding cake. I just had wedding cake ago. I There may or may not be wedding cake ice cream in the freezer. Uh, I am a big proponent of wedding cake, to say the very I know, least. and I'm kind it of a has- fan of the traditional wedding cake. I mean, I recognize I did not have a traditional wedding cake. We had this this carrot cake that was delicious and unbelievably tasty. But when it comes right down to like when you say wedding cake, there is a particular like taste that 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 comes to your mouth. Like there's a there's a way that wedding cake is actually supposed to taste. Uh, yeah, it, it very much. I, I look forward to heaven because I think that's just going to be wedding cake. Um, <laughs> I think that's what it is. Um, so it's a little bit of a little bit of glory in a fallen and broken world. 
<sighs> All right, you and I are talking about marriage today and weddings um, because there there is some recent um, conversation out there about how people are choosing who or who not to marry today. Marriage rates are down in the United States overall, but people are still getting married. What's something new we know about how people are ruling other people out in terms of who they would not marry? Uh, In a non-shocking twist, politics has yet again uh, spilled over the banks of the public square and into relationships. And so now we know new research. We've always known for probably around 10 years, it was around 40 percent of individuals uh, would uh, essentially only uh, marry someone that was of the same partisan side that they're on. Now that number has grown up to two thirds of individuals that would reject someone that does not agree with their political leanings, which is just an, a, another keen reminder that uh, politi- politics is inf- investing and becoming a growing part of how we live, move and have our being. You know, when Paul talks about not being unequally yoked, um, he's clearly talking about, you know, marrying a person who is not a believer. Um, When people come into a saving relationship with uh, with Jesus Christ and they're already married, they do find themselves in, you know, in marital relationships where, you know, they're praying for the salvation of their spouse. And that is a different scenario than Paul is um, then Paul is addressing. Paul's talking about entering intentionally into a marital relationship with a person that is not a Christian, that's not a believer. Um, but when we talk about being equally yoked today, I think people think less about faith, less about finding a partner who is, you know, a vibrant um, follower of Jesus, and they think more about like financial stability. Does this person? Um, you know, have the same life goals as me? Um, you know, do, uh, do they want to live in the same oh, yeah. kind of place? Do they have a vision of what life looks like 10 or 15 or 20 years down the road? Um, I, I just, I'm just not sure that we, that we have done a very good job um, helping people discern what marriage is and therefore what kind of marriage partner you ought to be looking for. I think I completely agree. So let me, uh, I'm going to get on my soapbox and just, uh, you you or Paul, just tell me when I need to be quiet. So one, uh, I'll give context. I grew up in a family in which I, I, I was ideologically different from a political side than my family. Um, but it was also a keen reminder for me because I knew the other side of the argument. I knew the other side didn't want what's worst for our country, but wanted what's best. They just had a different way of getting there. So I've grown up disagreeing politically with my family and close friends. Even to this day, I still reach out when I listen to a podcast, when I read a book, I'll send a screenshot, send a link over to my friends and ask, how am I thinking about this wrongly? Steal me in this argument. Give me the best version of what I'm not saying, because I'm assuming best intentions for that side. Increasingly, that's just not the case. Disagreement means they want what's worse for the country. They don't have the best interests in mind. And then you bring it, you bring in such a great point when you look at Paul's letter to the uh, church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 6. He talks about being unequally yoked. Just get the picture of 
two animals with a bar across their necks or across their bodies that are moving in the same direction um, and unequally yoked being that they're not making progress forward because there's so much differences between. I think politics does have a role, but unfortunately, I think it's been elevated to a much greater degree than what it needs to be. There's a part of it. I, I disagree with my wife over political matters, but there's another, uh, what it, what's, what's been said by Montaigne, there's nothing more boring than a conversation in which everyone agrees. Uh, we we want to make sure that politics has a place, but it doesn't assume the ultimate place. And then just to put my ideological cards on the table right now, and a shocking twist, I know this will come as a shock, I lean more conservative. And so as a conservative, I, I have a very limited, I think that there's more important things in life than politics. It's my family. It's my faith. It's my community. And those hold much greater power and much greater emphasis in my life. And so I don't want to elevate politics above those things. And I want to make sure that I keep those permanent things of uh, elevated importance. And I, so I, I'm a little confused when you hear certain sides of the aisle begin to place a greater emphasis on politics, because I think what I can do in the political square is is far smaller than what I can do around the dining room table by raising a daughter and loving my wife and supporting her and all that she's doing so that she might be able to flourish in our community and they might praise her name at the community gates. That's so good. Um, I find myself wanting to advocate that uh, when we talk about people we are in relationship with, and in particular when we talk about you know, what's happening in our own households, um, that we would be people really consumed by a kingdom agenda, not by, uh, you know, a, a, a kind of like red or blue partisan national agenda, that we would be oh, yeah. kingdom agenda people. And that, I'm, I guess I'm hoping that would transform the conversations uh, in our homes and, and then and ultimately in, in the larger world. But I think that that's hard for people to make the transition to. I, you know, I guess we'd have to get to the place where we really could talk about the marriage feast of the Lamb. We really could talk about wedding cake in heaven. We we really could talk about, um, you know, what it's going to be like to live together um, forever in eternity, where everybody does agree on everything. Like it's really it's so hard for us to imagine in this life, but it is coming. That is coming. We will be you know, of one mind and of one spirit in perfect unity um, in in a wedded relationship to Christ that is eternal. It's it's really hard for us to imagine, but that's what's coming. And, and in the meantime, you're completely spot on, Carmen. And in the meantime, it just adds a particular emphasis when we think about politics of Paul's letter to the church at Colossae in Colossians 3, when he says that we bear with one another. Mm-hmm. We might not agree with one another right now, but we've still been called to bear with one another. We're, we're, we're coming together and recognizing we may not agree. We don't agree on everything. I am a rabid Titans fan, and I know there are probably some listeners that are Vikings fans up there or Patriots fans up there. And you know what? It's okay that they're wrong. It's okay to not be a Titans fan. Well, I'll put up with it for a time. I'm just kidding, uh, by the way. Well, kind of, sort of. But, you know, we bear with one another in these Mm. things because I I still believe it. I believe the best of my brothers and sisters. And I I want, I don't, in the the grand scheme of things, I'm far more concerned with their soul than their vote. And I want to make sure that their soul's well. And I've been called to love you. And my love is supposed to be unconditional to you and not contingent upon your partisanship. Mm, So good. All right. We got to take a brief break. I know you know that. 
Um, we're going to continue our conversation with Nick Pitts in just a moment. We're going to um, we're going to ask and seek to answer the question: What constitutes a historical cultural monument? Think about that for just a moment in the community where you live. What constitutes a historical cultural monument? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. The Bible is valuable, and reading and studying the Bible can transform your life. Hi, I'm Angela Smith, host of Reading the Bible Together podcast. Several times a year, we release a new Reading the Bible Together study. We've studied Luke, Daniel, Advent, Lent, and so many more. You can access all of our studies for free by going to the Reading the Bible Together resource page at myfaithradio.com. In addition to the studies, we also have the accompanying podcast. You can listen wherever you listen to podcasts. You can study on your own, or if your small group or Bible study is looking for what to study next, check out the Reading the Bible Together resource page at myfaithradio.com. All right, in the city of Los Angeles, uh, apparently there was a house that was set to be demolished, and then people got all excited because it was Marilyn Monroe's former home. Um, and the L.A. City Council has saved it from demolition by applying uh, a, a, a standard of historical cultural monument. So what constitutes a historical cultural monument? Nick Pitts, what, what says ye? Oh, good question. Well, I think my house at 1112 Belmont Drive, Cookville, Tennessee, would definitely go along those lines. I, I can't tell you, Carmen, the amount of baseball that was played in that backyard. And it's a particular significance because of how little improvement was made back there. It's a, it's a great significance and a, a modern marvel that practice does not make perfect. So, um, you know, there was obviously a development plan that has now been um, stymied uh, in this conversation, uh, a 12-0 vote in favor of the motion to... Um, uh, to apply this standard of historic cultural monument to this particular house. Um, the Cultural Heritage Commission now has 75 days to approve the historic status. Um, you know, I I guess I find myself wondering, you know, why nobody cared about this all along the way. And then suddenly when somebody wants to do something else with the land, now, um, you know, now suddenly this house where a where an individual lived for a period of time is so significant that um you know that we're gonna um we're gonna stand up against the use of the of the property in some other way and what got me thinking about is you know like what what are our standards of historical cultural monuments and if if what matters um you know are like you say the amount of baseball that was played in the yard and the um, the things that took place there and how faith was cultivated and how family was formed and um, and who we are was forged, then every, then, you know, then every good home is a historical cultural monument, um, but not necessarily the ones where bad things happened. And so that's a little bit of the, you know, like, how do you apply that kind of criteria? And is it just because a famous person lived there? And if so, you know, what does that mean? Like, I, I don't know. I, yeah. You see what, where I'm wandering oh, yeah. around in this. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's like, it's a, it's a series of trade-offs, right? Uh, because at the very core, from a city standpoint, from a revenue standpoint, uh, you you understand that that the, that value that land has greater value to be used by something else. 
Um, and so there's just a, like this is at the core of the gentrification argument where individuals are coming in and wanting to bring tear down old houses and build bigger ones and generate more city revenue through property tax dollars, et cetera. But then there's the other side of the argument that says, well, no, this is this house has significance because it makes this community it. You see this a lot in Nashville and in surrounding communities where you where you have these significant buildings that are, are are taking prime real estate and there's a contingent, a large contingent, uh, some would say, within communities that say, well, no, we're, we're losing a little bit of ourselves when we mm-hmm. take down this building and replace it with a parking garage, right? Uh, uh, or we lose a little bit of our community and our sense of self when we just continue to innovate and we continue to build a new and we forget who we really are because it does it does get back to that point of the nostalgic idea of this is a part of us and I, I don't want to see that go. And so I, I think the balancing act would be like you've mentioned, what what are those what's that criteria so that we can make sure it, it's equal and, and everyone has a fair shot at being able to understand the cultural significant markers within our community? but also recognize that we can't keep up everything. So how can we remember anew those things um, in unique and new ways if we're forced to take them down? Yeah, I, I remember a conversation with the First Nations representative who, you know, you know, said, you know, you can actually look at a map and you can know whose land you're living on, um, you know, whose, whose home this used to be. And, you know, it, it just makes me recognize that there are times that we – um, we imagine that the present matters more than the past and who lives here now matters more than who lived here before. Um, this is a provocative conversation. And uh, as I just lift it up, it's a good conversation for you to have in your own community, wherever you live, um, in your own small small community, in your own town, in your own city, in your own state, certainly in the country in which you live. And and also, you know, when you think of, of the things that we continue to dig up Check out uh, what archaeologists have recently dug up uh, in Jerusalem. It's it, the steps where Jesus healed the blind man. Uh, we, we know it as uh, the Pool of Siloam. Eight steps of the Pool of Siloam have now been unearthed, and you can read about that online in all kinds of, of places and um, have the opportunity to engage in conversation with people you love about you know the reality that these places are real, real things happened, um, and it's worth taking note. And so what what constitutes a historical cultural monument in your mind um, and in your heart? And what are the things that you think should should be retained um, because of uh, of their historical significance? Nick, as always, thank you so much. It's a joy to talk with you. So great to be with you, Carmen. Yeah, it's great. Get some, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find somewhere to get some wedding cake. This sounds delicious. <laughs> go, go for like a tasting. Let's go for a wedding cake good. tasting. Yeah, sounds great. Wedding cake All for right. breakfast. I feel really good about that. I know. Sounds fantastic. All right. Let's go. Let's take a moment to go upwards with our friend Max Lucado. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Yes, yes. Carrot cake for breakfast. Mm-hmm. Why not? For a pumpkin muffin. Why not? Mm, banana bread. Ooh, uh, that's what I actually had this morning. Banana bread? Yeah, my wife made some and made a whole bunch, and we're still trying to use it up. And so, yeah, I had some banana bread this morning. That's so good. Um, With chocolate chips and walnuts. Mm, You could remind Jessica that um, the Faith Radio fundraiser is coming up 
uh, the week of September, like what, 24th or 25th? 25th, yes. Could she maybe maybe just put that on the on the baking, you know, on the baking calendar? Maybe oh, the sure. Faith Radio fundraiser could be on the family baking calendar. Hmm. I'm just I'm just saying. Just I, saying. Because banana bread with 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 nuts and and chocolate chips sounds yummy. Quite good. It was. It is mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. quite good. Mm-hmm. Um all right. So, um let me just brief you in on some things that are happening around the world, uh, international headlines. Uh, four days after the earthquake in Morocco, uh, people in mountain villages, you know, they're still waiting for help to arrive. Um, and so let's just continue lifting the situation up. The, the international community is really seeking to respond. But for whatever reason, the Moroccan government has been slow to accept international uh, help. And so that has left people really, really desperate out there on the edges. So let's be praying for that circumstance. There have been terrible floods in Libya um, floods have actually washed away entire neighborhoods in Libya. The death toll now stands at over 300, but there are some 5,000 people missing. And so let's be uh, praying that those those folks could be found and reunited and um, uh, that, that aid could be uh, supplied. The We told you this was coming, but the heavily armored private train carrying North Korea's leader, uh, Kim Jong-un, um, He's headed to a meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin. So that heavily armored private train has now crossed into Russia. That happened earlier this morning. It's anticipated that the two are going to uh, work out the details of a deal through which Russia would be provided um, ammunition, munitions to resupply its ongoing war against the people of Ukraine. And in exchange... Russia might be offering any range of things uh, to meet North Korea's needs. I'm thinking here, cold, hard cash, uh, food, missile technology. Um, so that um, that is in the works. And it says a lot about where uh, the point at which Russia has arrived, that it needs to appeal to North Korea for help. It also, um, you know, just demonstrates that bad actors around the world um, find friendships with one another. And that's not good for the rest of us. So it's just let's lift this up as a prayer concern as well. Uh, the United States and Iran are on the verge of a major deal. I think I briefly um, teed this up in conversation yesterday, but uh, the United States and Iran are on the verge of a major deal that would free five Americans detained in Iran. Um, but that would also release six billion dollars in oil funds that have been frozen in South Korea uh, through the international sanctions against Iran because of its violations of international restrictions on their development of nuclear weapons and um, and human rights violations as well. And so this is a um, this is a very controversial ethical a conversation about the ethics of how we go about negotiating the release of Americans who are detained abroad. Uh, and this is going to look uh, to a lot of people like we're paying a ransom. Um, and it's also going to look like we are making $6 billion in assets available to Iran um, to do things that we know are contrary to um, the positive future of the world order. So all of that is going on. Our friend Luke Moon is going to join us. He's actually in Los Angeles doing something really, really cool. For those of you who like um, The Chosen, Luke is like on a teaching mission right now. He is teaching the cast of The Chosen, the history of Israel. How cool is that? Yeah, he's going to join us next. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen.
Hey, our friend Luke Moon is with us. I can hardly believe he's awake. He's on the West Coast, uh, so his, I don't know, do you, do you even, good morning. Let's see how your voice sounds. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Carmen. <laughs> is is it still dark in L.A.? This could be a philosophical it, question. It is. Or, it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's dark in L.A. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm All not right, going to go there. philosophical yet. I mean, I could, but it's, it's early, so it will be like uh, – the meanderings of a uh, sleep deprived, you know. It's okay. That's what philosophy sounds man. like. That's what philosophy sounds like to most of us anyway. <laughs> so <laughs> it's good. It's good. Um, what are you doing out there? This sounds very exciting. I it, it's it is exciting. I'm I'm in L.A. to uh, teach the cast of the Chosen the history of Israel before I take them to Israel. Actually. Oh, see now that is so much fun! Oh I know, my goodness! I know. Okay, people I know. are now they're like, "How could I? How can I go carry the bags on that trip? Yeah, how can I?" Everybody, everybody has asked me to uh, to if they could come carry the bags. Oh yeah, and totally. Unfortunately, there's going to be a lot of bag carriers already. So. <laughs> All the bag carriers, uh, the, those jobs yeah. are taken. Um, that is so exciting. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for, again, carving out time for us today and joining us. Um, it occurred to me that um, on 9-11, which was just yesterday, you might be a good person to ask kind of an open-ended question. What has changed? What have we learned specifically about Islamic Jihad and Islamic Jihadists since 9-11, 22 years ago? Yeah, that's a really good question. I I think global jihad or Islamic jihad around the globe has, you know, it it has kind of gone through these kind of, you know, it's it's like a lot of movements. It grows and then it wanes and then it grows again and it wanes again. And I think we're in one of those, um, you know, moments of where it's it's on the growing side of it, but just the very beginning. Um, you know, I think the way that the world has responded has been very interesting i mean it's you know we haven't heard much about jihad uh over the last several years because you know for most of us we're not impacted um there hasn't been major terrorist attacks uh in uh the u.s or many parts of 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 europe even though in those areas there's been a lot of of muslim immigrants um, the other thing that has happened is that there's been a, a lot of people, I think, have seen uh, the, you know, the overzealousness of the jihadi and have been like, I don't want that. I don't want to be a part of that. If that's if that's, you know, if that's what Islam is, then I don't want to be a part of that. Um mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that I've talked to s- several uh, of the church planters that I know in in the Middle East, they regularly say that people ask for Bibles because they're like, well, I, I this what I see in Islam is not it, it just isn't what I want. I don't I'm not attracted to it. It seems violent and bloody. And maybe this uh, thing that these jihadis are railing against, maybe that's the truth. And so, you know, they're seeking out Bibles. Um, And so I think there is, you know, obviously I think 
you know, there will be attacks here and there, but you know, the sophistication of the global kind of uh, surveillance network, um, you know, has kept us safe. And, you know, I think we've lost some freedoms as a result. I mean, you know, I was just flying yesterday and, you know, yet again, all of our, you know, bags have to be checked. You can't bring any water, on, you know, you small bottles of everything. I TSA pre-checks. So I don't have to take off my shoes, but people are taking off their shoes. Why? Because once upon a time, there was a guy who tried to blow up a plane by, you know, having bombs in his shoes. I mean, that's, that's you know, we're, we're still impacted uh, in, in ways that we probably uh, don't even realize anymore because we forgot why those went into effect. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Uh, we're talking with Luke Moon. He is our friend from the Philos Project. You can check them out at philosproject.org. Um, Philos begins in the same way philosophy begins, so P-H-I-L, for those of you uh, you know, who just got up and were thinking, how would I spell that if I wanted to type it in? Um, some uh, some progress made by Ukraine in terms of its counteroffensive against Russia. Uh, they have regained control of some Black Sea oil platforms or the entirety of the Black Sea oil platform. What's going on here? Yeah, there was a uh, it was you know special operations uh, project coming out of Ukraine uh, took over some. Uh, oil platforms that are kind of between uh, they're they're between the, the Ukrainian ports and uh, Crimea, and which is controlled by the Russians, and they, you know, uh, were able to uh, take the platforms. The, the special forces operators were uh, as a I think it's largely symbolic, but it's a symbol of kind of the the weakness at least the current weakness of of the of the russians you know in in face of what has been a uh counteroffensive on the on by the ukrainians going on now for several months um you know it's coming into winter winter is is a it's hard to fight a war in the winter time you know that's what it was you know in afghanistan People didn't fight the war in the wintertime. And I suspect, you know, coming in this year, uh, having gone on this war for over a year, I think, you know, it'll be, a, it'll be very interesting to see how this winter unfolds for Ukraine and Russia conflict here. Um, we want a little history lesson here in just a moment, Luke. Um, lots of people have seen the Golda Mir movie. Um, I'd like for you maybe to talk with us about Golda Meir. Uh, you guys are gonna you're gonna, gonna find an article that um, that we're gonna use as part of this conversation at providencemag.com. Um, Luke Moon and I are gonna continue this conversation in just a moment. Thank you so much for being here. Who is Golda Meir and what um, what might we, we learn from her life as people of faith? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. As we consider the life of Jesus and the life of the first generation of Christians, Reading here the book of Acts and all the letters to the Christians in the New Testament, we see people who like wake up. They come to see and understand and then receive Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And it changes everything. We see Christians then telling other people about the good news and inviting them 
to respond in repentance, be baptized, and follow Jesus. The movement of Christianity grows person by person and then exponentially as people walking in darkness receive the light of Christ and want others to know what they know and have what they have. Well, you and I are living in dark days. People need light. And Jesus is the light of the world today in the same way that he was the light of the world at the beginning of creation and at the first Christmas and throughout his life on earth and in his radiance now at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is the light of the world. So if you're walking in darkness of any kind today, I invite you to consider Jesus. If you'd like to know more about what it means to begin a relationship with Christ or to chat with someone about it, just text the word FAITH to 41224. Born Golda Mebovich in Kiev in 1898, the future Israeli premier grew up mired in poverty in, Tsarist, in the Tsarist Russian Empire. She had seven siblings, only two of whom survived into adulthood. Um, Luke Moon is here with us. I thought it would give us the opportunity in, in light of the Golda movie that is out right now. Maybe we would talk about Golda Meir. Yeah, she was a she was an incredible woman. Um, you know, they some have called her, you know, Israel's Iron Lady, which is kind of reminiscent of Margaret Thatcher. Um, she's the only, as of yet, the only female prime minister that Israel's had. Uh, she came to power, you know, Ben Gurion, who was the first uh, president, and you know, he he gave it to um, another guy and. and Golda was the was the person who took it from him, and it was at a time in which, you know, Israel was was still, you know, it, it had the deep memories, the deep scars of of the Holocaust, trying to figure out how to um, grow as a country. It was largely considered a a developing or you, you could even call it a, like a third world country. It was not doing well. Uh, you know, the people, a lot of people there were people who had suffered a lot of trauma and you can imagine trying to build a nation uh, with, with such a traumatized people, um, you know, and, but, you know, the thing that I think was remarkable about her was, you know, her commitment was, was over and over again towards action. Um, and that's a big part of, you know, one of the, one of the principles that, that, you know, kind of governs Philo's project is our, you know, we, we, even our advocacy, we call it incarnational advocacy, meaning it's like of the flesh. I mean, you, you're like, you're going to physically do something. And, and uh, we actually take that from Golda uh, because that was her, you know, her mantra was like, it's not enough to believe something. You actually have to do something. And she was uh, powerful. Uh, she, she was known as she was very stubborn. Uh, and, you know, she convinced her husband to move to, to, to Israel when it was, you know, still, you know, not, you know, if you're in Milwaukee, uh, Israel is a strange place to move to. But, you know, her husband went with her. Uh, they moved to Israel. Uh, they they she became very well known for her for her 
Uh, she was a good communicator. She was a good mobilizer. And she just kind of rose up. And she was, uh, she, she did great throughout the early wars, but it was after the uh, Yom Kippur War in 1973 that it was, it was, uh, she was, that Israel had come off kind of the, one could say the high of winning uh, the Six Day War in 1967, you know, and one could, you, you could think of yourself as like, oh, we're invincible, we're undefeatable. And, uh, and it was the, the war in 1973 on Yom Kippur, which is coming up this weekend. Uh, it was, it was uh, touch and go there. It was a good chance that Israel was going to be uh, annihilated by the joint invasion by uh, Egypt and Syria. Uh, but, you know, after three days, Israel regained its footing and was able to push back uh, and take more territory. But it was, she was, she was largely blamed for how that war was handled. Uh, and it, it led to her kind of coming getting out of office, but she was really quite an incredible woman and incredible leader. And, and I, you know, I think her commitment to just wanting to make sure things were done, not just talked about was, I think the, the perhaps one of the defining moments of her, her life and the defining principles of how she governed and also lived. Just imagine for a moment that you are um, a young girl, um, you know, the, the people who you know and trust, you know, best in the world are your parents. Um, and I want you to just imagine um, her dad for just a moment. So this is one of her early childhood memories, and it really did um, shape her worldview. Um, so she talked about frequently uh, her father boarding up the windows and the doors in a very feeble attempt to dissuade the Russian Cossacks from attacking their Jewish family. Um, and this formed in her this conviction that not only could non-Jews do terrible things to Jews just because they were Jews, um, but also this, um, this sense of impotence. She says, uh, she later wrote, I remember how angry I was that all my father could do to protect me was to nail a few planks together while we waited for the hooligans to come. I think, um, Luke, that sense of powerlessness, um, that never left her. And I think that, that yeah. that's what provoked this action-oriented life. She was, she was not going to be found um, idle when there might be something to do to, uh, to advance the cause. Yeah. 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 I mean, one of the, one of the, the, the things about her life, was was just how frustrated she was at that kind of the 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 sense of impotence uh in being able to fight back i mean she she recalls uh you know basically when the when the you know united states and the uk were kind of discussing what to do with jewish refugees right it was the, the jews were trying to flee russia or sorry trying to flee germany and no one would let them come into their country, and and the UK would not, the British would not allow them to go into to Israel either. And so there was a conference, and you know, she, she her her remark after that conference, you know, was that there's there's only one thing I hope to see before I die. She told the press after the conference, 
And it's that my people should not, should not need expressions of sympathy anymore. Like we're just mm. tired of being the, everybody's kind of having to like, what do we do with those Jewish people again? Kind of thing. Mm. And I think that just frustrated her, you know, going off the story with her father, but yet the nations treated the Jewish people so much the same way. And, um, she, her, her vision was for a strong Israel and a strong Jewish people. We see that now. Extraordinary. But, yeah. It's just an ex- extraordinary woman, just extraordinary yeah. woman. Um, Jacqueline is uh, on the text line saying the library at the university of Wisconsin, Milwaukee is named after her. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. Milwaukee is the town that, uh, that they immigrated to and that they, that she, uh, she grew up in. Um, and yes, was a, was a place of wonderful hospitality and growth. And so, yeah, thank you. If you're listening now and, um, in Wisconsin, this, this story is a part of your story as well. Um, all right, Luke, we have like one minute to reflect on and maybe, uh, maybe touch on the significance of the inclusion of the African union in the G20. It was a big deal, uh, in terms of one of the things that happened at the G20 meeting recently in India. Yeah, uh, now African Union is a permanent member of the G20. I, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm going to be a little cynical here. I think basically because the whole of you know the called the industrial world or the U.S. and Europe are obsessed with electric vehicles, and where do you get the minerals for those electric vehicles? You get it out of the continent of Africa, and so I, I think this is purely. It's not like suddenly you know. The, the rich nations are super excited to have, you know, the poor nations of Africa join them at their little party. It's more that like they want to, you know, they're looking at these guys have what I need and I'm we're going to let them come into our party. But I, I don't I don't I don't trust the West to treat Africa well. We don't have we don't have a good track record of that for, you know, basically, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Mm. I don't think changed that much. That's my, that's my cynical closing. Sorry. It's all right. <laughs> no, it's a good, it's a good observation. <laughs> it's a good observation. It's a good observation. So, um, yeah, it's always, it's always worth recognizing what the motivation might be. And, um, and often, very often the motivation is something under the ground. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Um, Luke, as always, uh, thank you so much. Um, blessings on you in your task in L.A. What a joy. We look forward to um, we look forward to an update on that the next time we talk. All right. Sounds good. Fantastic. That's Luke Moon. You can find him at the Philos Project, philosproject.org, also at Providence Magazine, providencemag.com. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Wow. Um, just a quick update here. The numbers uh, in relationship to um, the predicted missing in Libya, more than 10,000 people uh, believed to be missing in Libya following the floods from a storm named Daniel. Um, that is uh, that's just the most recent thing um, from the International Federation of Red Cross and the Red Crescent Societies. Uh, that's just, you know, just in. So let's be Let's be praying for people around the world today um, and just, you know, sort of like warning you in advance that this news is going to be probably, um, you know, top topping the headlines internationally, even as the situation in Morocco continues to uh, to unfold as well. Um, let's be let's be lifting up uh, 
lifting up the people of the of the world today with our um, desperate prayers. We got another hour together next. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.